Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, April 11th, 2023, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts, Lavendar and Anastasia. Tonight, we are celebrating the 14th anniversary of Starseed Hotline coming online in April of 2009. Doesn't time fly? And the 13th anniversary of Starseed Radio Academy, which first aired on March 20th of 2010. It was in our first two years of this show that Lavendar released a lot of information from her vault as she had been directed to wait until after Giant Rock in California cracked in two before she could publish or talk about it publicly. Now, with over 500 episodes in our archives, many people have yet to hear this first chapter because you've got to go through page after page after page to get there. So um, this chapter is called The Seedling, which goes back to before the beginning of Lavendar's life on planet Earth. This formed the foundation of her life, the beginnings of her awakening, the wild things that happened to her, and how she coped. And remember, this mostly took place in the 1960s and the 1970s, when no one was talking about starseeds or walk-ins or metaphysics, plus it took place in Oklahoma, in the middle of the Bible Belt. This chapter, titled The Seedling, is the first chapter of her book, which is Crack Between the Worlds, which essentially is Lavendar's autobiography and what she learned along the way. And we want to thank all the starseeds from every corner of the globe who have found their way to our site and Lavendar's work over the past 14 years and counting. And, of course, our website is starseedhotline.com and at the top of the show it's Anastasia's Starseed News bringing topics of interest and hope to starseeds and um, if you go to our website starseedhotline.com you can look through the vault of knowledge there's a lot of starseed information there and the stage one starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your astrological chart, and the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one Zoom session. So Lavendar has retired from doing sessions, so she can continue to write, finish her book, and write for Starseeds. And do remember, if you have a birthday coming up, you're going to get a window of 10 hours of great manifestation power. So find out exactly when that happens by ordering your solar return timing. And it only takes a week or two before your birthday um, that we need for lead time. But if you want a reading of that chart, you're going to need to order it about two months before your birthday. So uh, first up tonight, let me get back to my other screen. It is the wonderful Starseed News with Anastasia. Good evening, everyone. Hello, Ariel. Great to be with you. And Hello. I was just thinking as you were speaking, what a wonderful time this has been with the Starseed community. And I want to personally thank Lavendar for her wonderful contribution to enlightenment on this planet. 
what a blessing she has been to all of us, and I love her dearly. And, um, wow, she's she's really processed a lot in her lifetime and has much to share with us. So, one of a kind, you, Lavendar. Yes, well, absolutely. Yes, yeah, no, she is one of a kind. No, no doubt about it. And she really has, you know, the kind of knowledge that you get when you, uh, it's, it's a rare thing. It's a rare knowledge, and a, it's a it's a challenge, a real challenge to process this kind of information, to weigh it, to discern it, to know what to do with it, to keep yourself pulled together, and all of that. And uh, she has performed admirably in handling and processing all that she's been processing over these years. And so bless her for that. And uh, it's been a great number of years that I've spent with you all. I'll tell you what. So. Here's to us, and here's to love, and to endurance, as Lavendar has shown us how to do it. Well, tonight's program, we're going to talk about some really sweet stuff. Now, I have to confess to all of you. Now, you might kind of scowl at me by knowing this, but really for years I really didn't care very much for cats. I'm sorry. I was a dog person. But uh, a member of my family happened to like cats, and anyway, he had a bunch of cats who had kittens, and I was kind of charged with helping out with the kittens, and I fell in love with the kittens. And then I... One of the kittens selected me. I mean, it just bonded with me. I mean, it just felt it. It melted my heart. It climbed up one of my blue jean legs, one of my legs. I was wearing Levi's. Kitty climbed up my leg. And it was that moment, you know, when I just melded with this cat's soul, and it melded with mine. And it was a little girl. And honestly, I think about her to this day. She lived to be 20-some years old. Um, so that I fell in love with cats. Now, today I can't really be around cats anymore because I've kind of developed an allergy to them. But tonight I'm going to talk about cats a little bit and particularly senior uh, senior cats. Um, so we're going to start out with tonight's news that, and I think this is wonderful what people are doing. I wish, I wish the communities of their country and of the world would be so good to elderly people. <laughs> but this <laughs> is what is being done for senior kitties. And there's a community in New York, and we can thank them, because they they've, uh, have a public library that has raised enough money from their community to ensure the care of their treasured library cat. Now, the cat is named Libby, and she is 19 years old. And she has lived in the library, and she's brought joy and calm and serenity to patrons for well all of her years. But, of course, like everything else, the older she gets, the more they say it costs to keep her healthy. So the librarian, the head librarian, said, this year alone we spent nearly $900 on vet bills for her treatment for an ear infection and a cold for our small library on a very limited budget, uh, this is devastating. So the public library, which relies largely on the township support and donations, opened up a GoFundMe to try and raise funds for Libby's vet, vet bills. And what they said in their page was, Libby is getting older and slower and a little frailer, but we're determined to give her the best care we can. Unfortunately, care comes at a cost, so can you help out? Well, they had a, a goal of $1,500, but as of Friday morning, last Friday, more than $2,900 had been raised. And she said, the outpouring of affection for our dear Libby has been so heartwarming. We've Aww. had folks coming in who've never visited our library telling tales of cats that were important to them and how Libby's story in the paper touched their hearts. I mean, Aww. you know, if you've ever loved a cat, particularly an old cat, you really, you really know what this is about. And she added that Libby, uh, who recently got this cold, is now doing much better because she has her medicine. 
and the cat also appreciates the public's visits. <laughs> she said, thanks to our community, we've raised money to ensure her good care going forward, as well as paying her old bills. We love our kitty, and we love our library, and your generous support has been a great message that you all feel the same. Thank you. So, ah, that's just a wonderful story. See, animals bring out the best in all of us, and dang, that's just great. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, I know star seeds are very conscientious like that, and bless each one of you who reaches out and helps animals in that way. I love you all. Well, here's a story. This is kind of a head-scratcher in a way. Wait till you hear it. A homeless woman in Maine has no house, purchased a brand-new bicycle for a child after learning that his was stolen. And the police department of Rockland is calling this homeless woman a superhero. Now, according to the police department, a three-year-old boy, that's a little training wheel size, a three-year-old boy left his Spider-Man bicycle outside of a store while he and his mother were inside shopping. When they came out of the store, his bicycle with training wheels was gone. Well, a stranger who asked to remain anonymous saw this social media post about the stolen bike and felt she had to do something. So the police department said in their press release, Last night, a superhero stopped by the Rockland Police Department and donated a brand new Spider-Man bicycle, a matching helmet, and bike lock for our young victim. The hero wanted nothing in return, but in speaking to one of our officers, we learned a little bit about her own recent struggles that made this gesture even more beautiful. The woman, who lives all the way over in another county, saw our post and felt as if she had to do something to help. Unfortunately, she was recently forced to choose between making her rent or her car payment. Not wanting to default on her car loan, she now is currently unhoused and living out of her car. Her own struggles did not, enter, did not deter the woman, however, and she selflessly purchased a new bicycle, helmet, and lock at a local Walmart and made the drive over here to Rockland. The woman's generosity was contagious, and a clerk who heard what she was doing gave her money to help pay for tolls. Oh. In addition, a recovery coalition is collecting donations from anyone who would like to support this woman who made a difference in the little boy's life and inspired others in the process. Others have reached out asking how they can help or have sent us screenshots even of children's bikes for other children who don't have bicycles that they have ordered and shipped to the police department to give, to, other key, to give to other children in our community who is in need. So uh, oh. it just exploded with generosity. So if you want to know about the woman or you want to maybe help to her welfare... Go to Rockland, New York Police Department, and um, the story about the stolen Spider-Man bicycle and the superhero, excuse me, Rockland, Maine, excuse me. Oh, wait a minute. I got this wrong. She was from Maine. I don't know if it's Maine or New York. What do you know about that? Anyway, you can look it up. Uh, woman, uh, local hero, uh, buys a Spider-Man bicycle for a little boy. That's it. If you want to help her out. Okay. Now. A lot of our Starseed people love Star Wars. I mean, good grief, how could we not? And Star Wars going all the way back. Boy, to the beginning. Remember the old days. Goodness sakes. Luke Skywalker was just a babe. Wow. Look at him now, an old man. Well, here we go. There is good news for Star Wars fans. The big screen is going to go back long, long ago to a galaxy far, far away 
as three new Star Wars films have been announced by Lucasfilm. Three more movies, everybody. The three movies will take place at different stages of the Star Wars timeline. One of the movies will see Daisy Ridley reprise her role as Rey, who was the focal point of the final trilogy in the original Skywalker saga. And Lucasfilm, which is now owned by Disney, said Rey will spend the film, which will be set 15 years after the rise of Skywalker, building a new Jedi order. More Jedis, a new order. The Star Wars films are the second highest grossing film franchise in all of time, worldwide, behind the Marvel Universe, having grossed over $10 billion at the global box office. So people intuitively, instinctively know all about the Force, don't we? And uh, yeah. how to work with the Force. <laughs> yeah. A lot of truth in that. And, uh, you know, this is uh, an interesting article. I wanted to share it with you. In all of my time working in my uh, psychic world and uh, working with people for umpty-ump years, um, well, people go through phases where they're really struggling, and they'll say sometimes they'll say things like, well, what hope? I don't want any hope. Hope is like just wishing for something that never comes true. I don't want hope. Don't give me hope. Give me the thing. And so hope has kind of gotten a bad rap, and even I've done that at times. You know, religion over time says have faith, have hope, and no real answers. But hope really does have a very important psychological purpose. And since I note that in the world today we are on, uh, well, in dire straits so much of the time and everything teetering more and more into hopelessness, someone at the Washington Post, a columnist, wrote an article on the role and importance of hope. And so I want to share it with you. It's a message from mainstream news that's worthwhile. And she's not the only one to come up with this. I've been reading recently psychological research that's been done about the thing, you know, hope as, as a thing that we need. And she said, hope is critical to human flourishing. It belongs in the news. Hope isn't just thinking that everything will be okay. Hope is the belief that your future can be better and brighter than your past and that you actually have a role to play in making it better. This is according to authors of a book called Hope Rising. They say if hope were an equation, it would look something like this. So imagine, envision a blackboard, I'm going to write something for you. Hope equals goals plus roadmap plus willpower. They say that hope is more like a muscle than an emotion. Now think about that. The emotion being turned into an action. It can be taught and it can be learned. And people with more hope uh, perform better in school. They perform better in sports and work. Uh, so that we need to ask, um, when, when it comes to solving problems, instead of just saying, I don't know what to do, hope helps us answer questions and to create questions such as, what are the realistic goals in the face of this wicked problem. What's realistic? What can we do about it? What are some of the ways that other communities have tried to come up with solutions? How did these other people manage to press on when things didn't go as planned? This writer ends her piece by saying about journalists, she says, for journalists, hope is a defiant way of being in the world, ever on the lookout for what is but always 
alert to what might be. So look out for what is, but always be alert to what might be. Hope really is critical to the development of a new world and to turning things around and to becoming all that you are born to be. Hope is essential. So I just wanted to bring that up with you today because I think that hope gets a bad rap and I think it's misunderstood. And the darker times get, the more important hope is going to become. And one thing I've learned in my long years of practice is that, you know, if you stop caring, you can't be helped. So the one thing we have to guard ourselves against is becoming indifferent, not caring. Never let yourself stop caring. And hope is critical to that. So hold on to hope. It's a part of who you are. And it's a part of making the world what you want it to become. Without that, well, you just can't, can't let that happen. You have to keep hoping. Now, in Canada, they are making its largest investment ever in protection for Canadian fresh water. I mean, the government has stepped up. The government just committed $650 million over 10 years for the Fraser River, the Mackenzie River, Lake Winnipeg, the Lake of the Woods, Lake Simcoe, the St. Lawrence River, and the Great Lakes. And according to the Canadian Broadcasting Company, these funds will be used for monitoring, restoration, preventing harmful chemicals, and reducing algae blooms. Well, come on, United States of America, let's follow the Canadians. Let's invest in the protection of fresh water for crying out loud, because this is something that we really need to do. And we'll bring some hope into that equation, and let's use our influences wherever. Those of you who are in the position to exercise influence, that's a, one of the great places to start. All right, back to old cats. You guys, I'm sorry I don't have a, you know, I can't show you pictures. But you can look this up on YouTube. There is a place in Great Britain uh, called West Midlands. And in this little community, cat lovers have created this most beautiful and absolutely unique and wondrous cat rescue operation. It's called Shropshire Cat Rescue. They take in homeless, stray, abandoned, and unwanted cats and kittens. And, of course, they put up veterinary care for feral felines in the area. But particular to this charity is that it has 17 cats, all of which have been given up or found stray in what should have been their golden years, aged kitties, who are now safe and comfortable in the Moggy's Retirement Village. Look it up on the Internet. You've got to see this on YouTube. Moggy's, M-O-G-G-I-E-S, Retirement Village. And I'll tell you why you want to see this. It's literally a village. It's little cat houses. Don't look like dog houses. They're even cuter. Little cat dwellings, a little suburb of kitty houses. The cats enjoy the cushy life with volunteers taking time to look after them and even getting local kids to read to them once a month. Now, that I have no explanation for. I don't know what they're reading to the cats, but that's what it says. <laughs> a video of the gated community, you've got to check this out, shows a series of mini cottages literally surrounded by well-kept gardens. No kidding. Cute little shrubs, flowers, grass. Where the cats are housed, there are little gardens. Each cottage, really, contains a bed, a litter tray, food and drink bowls, immaculate, and various toys for up to two cats. Toys, beds, water, food, adorable house. What more could you ask for? (laughs) And in this community, this cat suburb, which is really cute, guys. There's also cat housing called Moggy's Mansion. 
It's a larger house with bigger toys and beds where the cats can hang out together. A community center for cats. The <laughs> senior center. Yes, it's, it's unbelievable. you got to check out this video. Take time and find it. The shelter was intended to create an area for cats who were too elderly or had ongoing health conditions that needed regular treatment and monitoring to live out their days in comfort. Now, the charity has been rescuing and rehoming cats in the area since 1989. And uh, even though most of the cats are older, a lot older, like 19 in their 20s, but there's others as young as three. So they also have opened a door for these people, old people, who had elderly cats and maybe they had to leave their homes, couldn't take the cats. So now there's a place for the kitties to go. It's a different option. It helps the old owner and the old kitties. find Everybody gets to find a place to be. And because old cats, much like old humans, tend to be set in their ways, and they do, their arrival at the retirement community is often pretty stressful. So they lock them up in this cottage. No punishment there, trust me. It's about <laughs> like being locked up in a suite in a fabulous hotel somewhere they're locked in this beautiful little suite for about two weeks to become accustomed to their new environment which you really have to do with young cats too because if you do not confine them after moving they will run away and they will go back to their old house so all cats young cats old cats if they move they've got to be kept in the same place for at least two weeks and that's what they do and so this the retirement village cats are weighed every week they're monitored for weight changes and indications that something isn't right they get vet checks uh, they get excellent care, and the volunteers work around the clock. And yeah, that's right. They get night care, too, 365 days a year to be sure that the cats are able to live their best life. And the volunteers show up no matter snow, sleet, rain, doesn't matter. Everybody shows up for work. And what's beautiful is in the video, one of these volunteers, I think her name is Susie, is taking us through the little community and petting each cat. And these cats are so appreciative they're old they're mellow they're just living it up you see them in their little houses it's the cutest thing ever you got to see it it's just it's absolutely beautiful very endearing i would like somebody in the united states to come up with that there's a challenge let's let somebody find with a little bit of property nice big place it's got a carpenter that they friend or somebody or they're good with carpentering let's make another cat village here in the states it's huh. it's great well, from that to uh, let's talk about tuition-free education before we end tonight's news, which I think is a very worthy and wonderful thing to do. I think it should be done all across the country. Sorry if I'm not capitalistic enough for you all, but, you know, without education, uh, boy, life doesn't – got to have education. Of course, <laughs> we don't want to let education interfere with our uh, our learning uh, that's what um, Mark Twain said, that don't let ed- education interfere with your learning. We can learn things in many ways, but when it comes to having a, an, a formal college degree, the city of Boston has expanded its tuition-free uh, college program to include all city residents, regardless of age and income. That means anybody can go and take any class. You might be 85, but maybe you want to learn Spanish. Well, you can do it. Starting this fall, any Boston resident will be eligible to, purchase, to pursue a degree or a certificate at one of their six local educational institutions without paying for it. And there's, like I said, six community colleges. I won't read them all to you because almost nobody listening to me tonight is probably from Boston. But Boston's mayor said she believes that every Boston resident who wants to earn the skills and knowledge to give back to communities and build a better life 
should be able to do so. So their tuition-free community college program is now serving over 1,000 students and rising. Now, I like that. Don't you, Arielle? That's where our tax money ought to go. Let's give people some free education and change their lives. That is one way to set the equity, the income equality, and all of that in the country right. Put it in the right place and get everybody the same chances to have a good life. I really love that. I hope they continue to do that all over the country. So in many ways, our world is improving, while on the other hand, it's needing some very heavy-duty rescue. Um, I would like to say that... uh, what, I want to leave you with what Rumi said. Wear gratitude like a cloak, and it will feed every corner of your life. So when I share these stories with you, I am put into a state of gratitude when I realize that the wonderful things that people are doing for each other, and it's happening every day all around the world, and that makes me deeply grateful. And I have found that that attitude of gratitude enriches my life in untold ways. And also, guess what? It helps me be a more generous person, which means I have more to give, more energy to give, more love to give, more happiness to give. And therefore, I can spread it around a little bit more, and there it's just like this wonderful thing that spreads. And when we see it, we begin to practice it, and then we begin to give it, and on and on it goes. We pay it forward. Well, from my heart to each one of you, have a beautiful couple of weeks, everybody. And it's going to be great, Ariel, to listen to this uh, uh, teaching tonight from, from Lavendar. I mean, this has been in hiding for a while, so this is an important program. I'm really glad to see it brought out. Thank you for doing that. I'm sure. going to enjoy listening to it again. been a long time. Well, good. Yeah, well, you know, like I said, with 500 episodes in the archives, a lot of people don't go back 14, 13 years uh, to see what they missed. So we're bringing that forward um, for our, well, the radio show's 13th birthday and the website's 14th. So thank you so much for the Starseed News, Anastasia. Great job, as always. And you have a great couple of weeks. Okay. So I am going to get the ball rolling here. And this, remember, is from... Uh, September of 2010, one of our very first uh, releases uh, from Lavendar's Vault. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, September 21st, 2010, just one day before the equinox. I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-host, Lavendar. Today, Lavendar will start at the beginning of her experience on planet Earth with her chapter called The Seedling which lays the foundation for the journey that took her to Giant Rock and beyond. If you haven't heard last week's episode called Crack Between the Worlds, we hope you make the time to listen to it in the archives and then join us each week as the Chronicle progresses. Before others were even channeling ET information, Lavendar was living the demonstrations of galactic operations even in childhood. All of our past shows are available on demand at blogtalkradio forward slash starseedradioacademy. If you're new to our show, you've missed a lot of chapters, but they're still available for you to catch up. If you haven't visited our main site yet, which is starseedhotline.com, 
We have a lot of fascinating and necessary information for Starseed in our vault of, of knowledge, like Lavendar's discovery of star markings, Solar Returns, your 10 hours of power, and the Teton Report. It's like a free Internet classroom library for Starseed. We also have an archive of past teleconferences you can hear on our headline news page. Just click the banner on the main page and it takes you to the headline news page. Then once you're there, near the bottom of the page, you can also find the video slideshow where Lavendar tells the details about her discovery of star markings and the Pleiadian lineup where she spent two days in the Great Pyramid with the Pleiadian ship overhead conducting a giant walk-in procedure. It's a spellbinding story, if you haven't heard it yet. You can see the pictures on our main site. Just go down the list of links on the left of any page and click Magical Moments Caught on Film. We also have a support forum for Starseed at starseedhotline.ning.com. That's starseedhotline.ning.com. I'll be introducing Lavendar in just a moment, but first I'd also like to mention that she has written two books for Starseed, which are now available as e-books on our site. The first one, 50 Questions and Answers, is a transmission from the Antares Arcturus Midway Station, where she had the opportunity to ask 50 profound questions and be answered clearly and truthfully by Silovan, an ascended guardian of this galaxy. The second e-book, Quartz Crystals, a Celestial Point of View is a comprehensive guide for the starseed use of crystals, including solar star dates for the next 10 years for charging crystals with galactic frequency. These books are a must-read for starseed to understand the galactic big picture and your part in it. And now it's time to introduce Lavendar before she starts her story. Hello, Lavendar. Well, hello, and I want to thank everyone for all their comments and their phone calls and their emails. Um, you know, it was uh, really a um, a big moment for, for me to release Crack Between the Worlds on Tuesday and on Saturday. And, of course, we had two different audiences, which was, you know, great because the people that, you know, could not be here on Tuesday could, could be on Saturday on the weekends. So I just want to thank uh, all of you for your comments, especially to my personal friends that that uh, came on and supported me and who have supported me all these years. So I just wanted to, you know, comment on that. And so when I got to thinking about what, what I needed to bring out of the vault next, I thought, after seeing some of the comments and emails, um, several people said, you know, you need to do an autobiography and, you know, what was your childhood like and who are you and, you know, so... <laughs> I thought, well, you know, maybe I should just pull that chapter out called The Seedling, something that I had written already. So that's what we decided to do today. And um, so I pre-recorded it, and um, so now you'll be able to hear it next. Okay, before I start that, um, do you want to say anything about the equinox and relevance to Starseed? Well, yes, you know, four times a year we have different activations that are planetarily uh, coded to starseed, well, actually to the whole planet, all, all living things on, on the planet. But um, these four times, they set the different um, clocks for uh, evolutionary movement, and 
the fall equinox really is a time when it signals to all the fauna and flora to go to sleep and to go to a, another direction of uh, creation uh, and get ready for winter. You know, that's one vibration. But the other vibration, it it gives us starseed on the planet a time to regroup and a plan for, the you know, the coming year and all the different things that we've been given in these different assignments at the Tetons and, you know, the August Harmonic Convergence and Pleiadian lineup and all of them, you know, there there is a time where it's a, a settling and a time of regrouping. So after the gong of the 23rd, um, there, there's just a, it's like a shifting gears in a car. You know, um, you know when I was on the farm driving tractor, we had gear shifts, and you know just had to, you know, go and find that gear to to go slow or go faster, you know, and, and crawl in crawling speed with the tractors, of course. And um, it just comes to mind that that's kind of what happens. It's a gear change, you know, within all of us. And it's a time of, uh, you know, you know. of course, we've had this great Jupiter-Uranus conjunct. And of course, Mars and Venus are, are, are conjunct in the sky and have been, and they keep traveling together, which really brings a lot of uh, people with their sexual energies together, a lot of male-female um, times that are happening within each person. You know, it's where you gather that other side of you. If you're men, your your feminine comes out. If you're women, your masculine comes out. But there's a balancing procedure that that's happening now. And with Jupiter Uranus, it's just shining really bright on on the whole planet, and it's giving us a feeling of optimism. You know, this is an uptime. This is lifting up the spirits of the people on the planet, regardless of the news, regardless of political rhetoric, Regardless of spiritual upheaval through religious, you know, battles, there's something else taking place on the planet. You know, and maybe it's a good thing the news doesn't have this. Maybe it's a good thing that this is not being broadcast, you know, as loudly as as their other, you know, drums of war. Because what we're doing is a very, very silent but very effective movement on the planet. And one day when we take a stand, really take a stand, you know, having to do with, you know, all the issues that other people are having to deal with right now, when when we do make our statement, and we'll be flying like, like a V, we'll be flying like the geese, and we'll be taking turns, you know, holding the point of this action. And the eagles will be coming out, and they will be learning to fly like geese, no longer like eagles, because, you know, eagles stand alone, they, they, you know, they have a way of saying, you know, I want to do it by myself. But I have a lot of broken-winged eagle friends and clients that have come back to me saying, you know, I can't really do this by myself. Therefore, I just really need some help. And can I find other people like me? And I've been collecting. You can't imagine the collection of people that I have now over all these years, especially the eagles. And they're just waiting. They're waiting for the right moment to show themselves again. They've been hurt, they've been smashed, you know. And, and and for those of you that are listening to this, if you had those experiences, I understand it totally, totally. So with the equinox, yeah, I would say, you know, that this is a time of, um, you know, reevaluating re- who you are. And I have a really good friend, Donna, in Hawaii, who, you know, this is her birthday, and so she's listening. I hope that 
she knows that I love and care about her, and she was with us on the Yucatan trip and spent a lot of time with me in Aruba. And so I just want to honor her for um, for the equinox, okay? Okay. That being said, we now bring you the chapter called The Seedling. Crack Between the Worlds, Chapter 1. This one's called The Seedling. I have spent several years making the decision to write Crack Between the Worlds. The wrestling matches I've had with myself over publishing this material almost put me on tilt. So the original intent of the writing of this book was to chronicle my adventures with a famous actress. After all, she was one of the people that were on the front front lines of metaphysical knowledge. What better way to inform the metaphysical students to keep a journal of our high strangeness adventures? And we had a lot of them. I was also aware that certain sections of this material should be put in the vault, as the world was not ready to hear this version of extraterrestrial behavior. The information that I would like to disclose now deals with more than amazing journeys we had in search of extraterrestrial contact. The information would deal with mind control, metaphysical deception, betrayal, abuses of power and energy, extraterrestrial technology, their interference, their experiments, and their lies and deceit. The Vanishing Twins and Extraterrestrial Agendas. Some of the material presented in this book I have held in confidence for over 30 years, waiting for the right time to release it. And I think that time is now. For me to present this information properly, you must know who I am, where I came from, and how I got to the point in my life where I learned this information. The first two chapters of this book are dedicated to my life and my metaphysical training. To borrow the title from a popular movie, I'm going to take you back to the future starting with 1950s as a young person and traveling through the mid-80s as an adult, where I was being prepared and trained to receive the information that I'm about to reveal to you. When you're a kid growing up, you never know what really lies ahead of you. You know, you just plug along in life with no worries, no agendas, no judgment. You just do the things that kids do, like take piano lessons, play with friends, go to school, do chores around the house. Well, I grew up on a farm in Oklahoma, so in my case, you know, part of my chores was picking cotton and driving a tractor at the age of 10, but more about that later. I never thought at the age of 10 that I'd ever take the path in life that I have taken or seen or done the things that I have, although my destiny was determined at my birth. I should have had my first clue about my adult life from the events of my conception and birth, but at the age of 10, I had more on my mind than to track my destiny. My parents were married for seven years but had not a child. They asked for a baby, but nothing had come about yet. They came to find out that my father was sterile. These verified tests of his sterility pretty much ended their hopes for a child. 
So when my mother became pregnant with me, it was a very shocking surprise to my parents. Years later, when I was an adult, I asked my mother about my conception, and she revealed to me that it was around the equinox in March of 42 when her pregnancy occurred. She recalled that she and my dad were sleeping the night with friends. They were making love when a light that appeared in the room hovered over them where they laid. My mother recalled the night of my conception because it was such an unusual experience. She said there was a very high degree of ecstasy and extraordinary lovemaking under the mysterious light. She knew at that time that something very special had happened, that she, and she knew she was going to conceive and have a child. After all, my mother was a genie. Tracking my conception now as an adult and what I know now about extraterrestrial interference or intervention, whatever, whichever way you want to call it, the conception was planned. They took galactic seed, gave it to my mother to hold in her womb space. My father was just the delivery system and a protective system. Suspecting that she was pregnant, she took a urine sample in a jar to the doctor and for some reason there was this little black spider in the jar. When mother found out she was pregnant, the doctor came out and said, you're going to have a little spider. So one might say, along came a spider. As a result of the doctor's humor, I was nicknamed Spider. The nickname Spider stuck with me most of my childhood, and every trip to the doctor after that was the same. Oh, you brought the little spider, he'd say. This was repeated when he took out my tonsils, set my broken arm twice, and took out my appendix. All of this before the age of five. The day of my birth, it snowed. My dad was off buying a horse saddle. My mother kept saying, oh, I can't deliver this baby until my husband gets here. So she held off having me until daddy came. They took her into the room, and when I was born, the doctor turned me upside down and started spanking me. My father said, don't spank her too hard. You're spanking the next woman president of the United States. And everyone laughed in the room. He said, I'm very serious. And they all stopped laughing. As a small child, I became very aware of things. I was born with full awareness. I could hear, see, understand. I knew English. I knew what people were saying. And I thought, oh, how quaint. Here I am, this little bitty, bitty butt in this body. And I can understand everything that everybody's saying. So they immediately washed me and gave me to my mother where I breastfed and then I was taken to the nursery. They laid me down with some crying kids and they left me in there for a very long time and those kids were crying and I'm thinking, oh my God, that, that really affected me later on. And I realized that it did because the first few hours that you're, first few hours that you're here, the sound and vibration of what you hear really stays with you. I also realized that in the nursery there was a window where I could see all the snow coming down and I have memory of seeing this great big praying mantis looking creature. I wasn't afraid of it, but I looked at it and thought, wow, I'm going to have to remember that. In fact, what I would do in my little bitty consciousness state is make mental recordings because I had to remember this. As soon as I could talk and form words, one of the first things I said was, I want to tell you about being born. My mother thought that it was just remarkable, and my dad told me not to ever tell anybody else. I didn't understand why I couldn't tell anybody, but he made sure that I never spoke to anyone about that. 
and that was the kind of pattern all my life. When anything strange ever happened, well, let's just don't talk about it. Years later, when I was researching, I found that people who had already ascended with full consciousness and awareness and who had chosen to come and be in physical body could and would be able to remember their birth and subsequent timings. I felt a lot better about where I'd come from because I realized that I'd really earned the right to remember my birth. And only people who had mastered life and death can come in and have full consciousness at birth. I didn't know that then, but I found it out through metaphysical training. It gave me a little more strength in knowing about who I was. My birth, the past, well, the many past life recalls and the extraterrestrial intervention was the engine that would run the, the train of my adulthood. But as a child, I had no concept of extraterrestrials or abductions or anything connected with, you know, anything of that nature. I would, as it turned out, address these subjects head-on as an adult. But, you know, I needed my childhood. Although I was born in 1942, most of my memories in childhood took place in the 50s. It was a time of UFO sightings. The term flying saucer had entered our vocabulary. There were the UFO movies of the 50s, such as It Came From Outer Space, The Day the Earth Stood Still, The Thing From Outer Space, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, The Thing From Another World, War of the Worlds, Them, and Forbidden Planet. Little did I know at the time that UFOs and extraterrestrials would be a big part of my life. The 50s were the era of new television broadcasting. Television became the dominant mass media and source for news as people brought TV into their homes. In the early 50s, young people watched TV more hours than they went to school. Ideal families, ideal schools, neighborhoods, the world were all seen in a way which had only partial basis in reality. Every American family wanted to be the Cleavers like Father Knows Best or the Nelsons of the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet. The effect on newspaper media and attendance at movies declined with a greater relevance on TV sources for information. There were sitcoms like The Honeymooners, Lassie, I Love Lucy that grabbed the uh, imagination of the American people and these shows featured popular characters who thousands of viewers watched each week and copied in their everyday life. Families enjoyed variety shows like The Wonderful World of Disney and The Ed Sullivan Show on Sunday evenings. People began to accept what was heard and seen on television because they were eyewitnesses to events as never before because television was live. Programs such as You Are There brought historical events into the living rooms of many Americans. Daytime programs like The Guiding Light, soap operas were popular and helped advertisers sell many products to the home makers of America. Fifties, well, <laughs> they were conservative in clothing, that's for sure. Men wore flannel suits and women wore dresses with pinched-in waist and high heels. Families worked together, played together, vacationed together, and gender roles were strongly held. Girls played with Barbie dolls and Dale Evans gear and boys with Roy Rogers and Davy Crockett paraphernalia. Drive-in movies became popular for families and teens. 
Cars were seen as an indicator of prosperity and coolness. Every teen had to have one. The fashion successes were Bill Blass and his blue jeans, poodle skirts made out of felt and decorated with sequins and, and poodle appliques, ponytails for girls and flat tops and crew cuts for guys. Saddle shoes, blue suede loafers were popular. Teenagers were defined as a separate generation and were represented by James Dean, who wore blue jeans in Rebel Without a Cause and created a fashion and attitude sensation. Activities that we liked were like flying saucer watching and watching and dancing to Dick Clark's American Bandstand. Fad hits with kids were toys like hula hoops and Hoplon Casty guns and Western gear and Davy Crockett coonskin hats and silly putty. The feel-good innocence of a lot of the 50s music reflected the optimism in America. We teenagers were looking for something more exciting. They discovered a type of music called rock and roll. And this music was developed from a blend of southern blues and gospel music with an added strong back beat. This music was popular with us teenagers because it broke out of the mainstream of conservative American middle-class mold. The greats were Bill Haley, Elvis Presley, and Jerry Lou Lewis were promoted on radio by just as, as popular disc jockeys like Alan Freed in The Big Bopper, who himself was a good artist. Who would ever forget Chantilly Lace? The deaths of Buddy Holly, Richie Valance, and The Big Bopper are still laminated by friends today. Music in the 50s was more like, more than just rock and roll, though. Crooners like Nat King Cole, Frank Sinatra, Perry Como, and Donna Shore were all popular. Many of these singers were the idols of the rockers who developed the new sounds. Many of their songs are still remembered by my generation. The 50s was the time of the Cold War and the threat of atomic attack. An animated turtle named Bert taught us how to duck and cover in case of atomic attack. This was comic, yet it was terrifying. Bert's lessons reflected an uh, abiding national concern with civil defense and the threat of nuclear attack that spread nationwide the tensions of the Cold War. The greatest fear during the Cold War was the risk it would escalate into a full nuclear exchange with hundreds of millions killed. But you know, we were, we were just kids, and we really never gave the Cold World that much thought. As I mentioned at the first of the chapter, you know, we lived on a farm in Oklahoma, and I was born with red hair, and my eyes were very big and wide, and from pictures taken, people would say, it looks like this kid's been electrocuted. Why are her eyes so big? <laughs> but it was just the state that I was in most of the time. Later on, my friend Donna would say, oh, please, don't show me those, don't show me or anybody else those baby pictures, not one more time. They really scare me. My hair started turning dark about the age of two. I was with my mother all the time, and I mean all the time, because Daddy was farming. My first memory of being in, in a garden was in the asparagus patch, crawling down through my little asparagus wonderland. We had dogs and cats and chickens, and one of my favorite pets was a chicken named Chicken Little. I played with him continuously until one day I accidentally rolled over on him while we were playing. You know, Chicken Little lived, but wasn't really right after that. He began chasing and terrifying me, so my, my dad, well, 
We had fried chicken made out of him. <laughs> As I grew older, I became aware of memory and how important it was to me. I can remember many, many things, such as how many beans were in a jar, or how many people were in a theater on a given day and time. This mind and memory exercise was the first of my training. Little things that didn't mean anything to anyone else were invaluable and important to me. I didn't know then how crucial this training would be years later when I started tracking the way I do. At the age of five, I started developing my psychic ability. I began seeing things, such people like who passed on, people that were dead, and then I'd see future events that would happen. My grandfather's birthday was April 16th, which is 26 degrees of Aries. So I had the psychic bloodline and my granddad's bloodline. Also, my granddad was my my also my granddad's great 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 grandfather was was a signer from South Carolina uh, who signed the Declaration of Independence, which is another part of my granddad's blood lineage. So I was aware that I was a daughter of the American Revolution, but never joined, although my mother did. Later on, when I started thinking about genetics and my granddad's psychic bloodline, I realized that I came into the world with a new frontier galactic spirit, because 26 degrees Aries is the mark of galactic spirit, and I had the new frontier in my bloodline. Now, my Earth daddy's uh, family, they were mostly Danish. And since my father was sterile, my, my father's mother, my material grandmother, never allowed my picture to be displayed with other grandchildren. It always perplexed me why I didn't put my picture with the others, but years later I realized her justification. She thought that my mother had been unfaithful to her son and had gone wayward with the traveling salesman. It was that old traveling salesman in the woodpile syndrome. I never resonated with that side of the family. I wasn't anything like them. I guess it was the galactic traveling salesman that kept me alienated from them. I'd always resonated with my mother and my grandmother, my mother's mother. My grandmother and I had the same birth date, born with Sagittarius Sun at 12 degrees. December 5th, 1889 was her birthday, and December 5, 1942 was mine. She really loved and adored me. I have a memory of my grandmother touching my mother's stomach while I was inside my mother's womb, and performing some kind of incantation. When I asked her about it later, she confirmed to me that she had indeed placed a blessing on me. I was an only child living on a farm, so I had no playmates except my mother and Chicken Little. My father was always busy undertaking chores or off fishing somewhere. He wasn't around like my mother was. When I was six years old, we moved um, back to a larger town, which is like four, 14 miles east of us, and that's where I would go to school. I was not very popular with any of the kids, and I didn't immediately make friends. I think I scared them on some level, and somehow they knew I was different. This was especially true when I'd say and do things that were just weren't normal for kids to say. It was an unfortunate fact that kids can be cruel. I had some cruel things done to me when I was younger, but I think that the cruelest thing they ever did to me was make sure I got some really nasty, and I mean nasty, cards on Valentine's Day. 
When we all put our little boxes out, mine was filled with really ugly Valentines. Every Valentine's Day for five years, it was, let's get her. And it wasn't just some of my classmates. It was all of them joining in on the fun at my expense. To this very day, I have trouble with Valentine's Day. It's not something that I look forward to. After the sixth grade, my grandparents moved to California, and we moved back to the farm. Now, this is a really, really small school. There were ten people in my class, nine boys and me. Here came another difficult five years. The only female support I had came from girls either older or younger than me. But in class, I was surrounded by the boys, most of who really had a crush on me. Because of the guys, I had to become somewhat tomboyish just to hold my own up. But, th but this was good. This was good for me. My encounter with public education had toughed me up and had made me a stronger person. I needed the toughness because I was really born a very delicate person. Being delicate was a hindrance in my early life. I was like a little hummingbird. This probably explained the ugly valentines. The doctor could not understand how I lived the first five years because I would hardly eat or drink anything. I was taken to him repeatedly because my mother couldn't coach me to eat. This little spider just didn't want to eat. Somehow I was re surviving on some other kind of system. For five years, two or three bites a day were all my mother could get me to eat. I learned later that I was on a different nutritional system. I had mastered in another life what some call a breatharian diet. Plus, I was receiving some kind of galactic colostrum, and that is how I was growing on nearly no nourishment. My physical or earth nutrition consisted of drinking milk directly from the cows, and, that, and that's mostly what I grew up on. I didn't eat vegetables or meat. I never ate anything green until my wanderings in the asparagus garden. After that, I ate something green. My parents went through quite an ordeal with me, over food and water. When I was 10, my daddy got into politics and one night he brought the governor home for dinner. I remembered where he sat at the table. My dad sat on one side of him and he said to me, young gal, just come and sit next to me. So I sat next to him on the other side. As we ate dinner, the adults were involved in big grown-up conversations and all of a sudden, like the sh shot heard around the world, I said out of the blue, are you going to divorce your wife and marry your secretary? There was a shocked look on the governor's face. Today when I think about this event, I remember the look on his face and it was priceless. Now my father wasn't pleased with this psychic happening. He started jumping through hoops with apologetic tone of voice. He said, oh, I must apologize for her. She speaks out of turn all the time. You just never know what's going to come out of her mouth. My dad was so mad and so upset at what I had done that he could hardly finish his meal. You know, years later, you know, uh, they would marry. So at the end of the year of 53, daughter one, dad zero, these were the kind of things I'd get myself into. Why? Because I had three planets in Sag, and if, the, if it's the truth, then it's the truth. What happens then is that my mouth just opens and things just start pouring out, and if it's the truth, it flew out, and there is a Sagittarian saying, if it hits thy brain, it hits thy mouth.
Also at 10 years old, I started my period, and I began developing breasts. At 12, I kissed my first boy, a senior in high school. At 14, my lifelong sweetheart started dating my best friend, and the learning betrayal firsthand really hurt. By, by 15, I had the body of a 25-year-old woman, and it really scared my parents to death, especially my dad. In pictures of me at 16, well, I looked like a young Elizabeth Taylor. I didn't know what that meant at the time and didn't think of myself as pretty. Actually, I just had many bouts of depression, not knowing then what depression was. I was just melancholy. My mother was very young in spirit, with black hair and a cute figure. Since I didn't have my driver's license yet, she'd take me to town to pick up my girlfriends, and we'd go drive around the town, the square honking the cor car horn at the boys. She became one of us. I spent some really good years with her that way. She was my best friend, and I could tell her anything from girl stuff to boys. She was very hip, and she didn't go for smoking cigarettes, but she would let us have a beer now and then. When I started dating, a strange thing would happen between me and the boys that I dated. Anytime I felt myself getting close enough to consider marriage and children, this voice would come out of my mouth. I would turn to them and channel all this material explaining why I could never have earth children. That would end a relationship in a New York heartbeat, especially in the 50s and 60s. This continued to happen to me with every one of my relationships. It was like a recording that would get turned on and off the minute a guy would cross the line leading to sex, marriage, or children. It was like it was rehearsed over and over and over again. It was the same speech, word for word, every time. It was a recording. It wasn't tailor-made for any one individual. You know, everyone was equal. They got the same speech. I didn't know it then, but I found out later that I had two pineals. I lived in one pineal, and the other was for visitors. In other words, an extraterrestrial came, dropped in to the second pineal. They'd do their thing, and I'm just a spectator watching the first pineal. This is where the recordings originated. Turn it on, turn it off. Watch boy go away. I can laugh now. I just hope none of them ever got together and compared notes. Well, who would have believed it anyway? Who says, I could never have any earth children? But that was just a clue. What other kind of children are there? And then, of course, years later, it giant rock when, you know, I was told, you belong to no man, you belong to us. And, of course, that really cued me in for later. You know, after that, I started dating an older man who was a state senator. Because I looked older than I really was, he thought I was 25, but in fact I was 18 years old. Thinking that I was older than I was, on February 13, 1963, he asked me to marry him. I told him I couldn't marry him because I didn't love him. He showed me the very next day, on Valentine's Day, he married a girl named Donna. Another little Valentine present. Later, he ran for governor of the state of Oklahoma, but he was not elected. But he was elected to the U.S. Congress. You know, I always had a fondness for him, and, and he, of course, died last year. My daddy wanted me to marry him, but 
I didn't love him. I liked him a lot, but it just he it just didn't have that spark. On top of that, out of my mouth came the famous I can't have any earth children speech. Every time I'd give this speech my eyes would glaze over and whammo, here came the the being unable to marry and have any earth children and, and being destined for other things. You know, I was 21 years old, still a virgin, and um, I still hadn't had that great sexual experience. I was dating a guy named Wallace who I was really crazy about. I decided that he was going to be the one to pluck the flower of my virtue. I went to Austin, Texas for Labor Day week to be with him. I got what I went for, but it wasn't what I expected. There were no bells, no whistles associated with this act of love. In fact, it was disappointing. Wallace never believed me when I told him I was a virgin. Flying back to Oklahoma City from Austin, the plane landed in Dallas for a layover. One of the stewardess on the plane, plane blurted out my name. She said, there was an emergency. Well, it was my girlfriend, my ex-roommate, and, and who got me off the plane for the emergency. It seemed she was suicidal, pregnant, and planning to kill herself. She didn't want to die by herself. She wanted me with her in the car so I could die with her. I mention this because I actually experienced a divine hand in this attempted suicide. We were driving back to Oklahoma City from Dallas. We were driving through the Arbuckle Mountains, halfway between Dallas and Oklahoma City, on a really curvy, narrow road, an old U.S. Highway 77, which is now I-35. As we started around a curve, she started saying that she didn't want to live anymore. I started to sense that there was something major about to happen, that we were about to drive off a cliff. Just as I started to reach for the wheel, another hand reached for the wheel and turned us right into the mountain instead of over at the side. I wasn't hurt, but the car was, was bumping and banging into the mountain. I felt like I was just floating in the air, not being impacted. I didn't know how that happened, at least at that point in my life. When the ambulance and police came, she had lost the baby. I never did tell them she tried to kill us. Needless to say that after that ride, our relationship ended. I mention this story only because I remembered that some divine hand intervened and saved my hide. Later on in life, I found out that this divine hand was actually E.T. intervention. That was the second E.T. occurrence in my life, and I was still asleep and unaware of what was happening. It was that religious program thinking that kept me from seeing the truth about any, anything. I worked for the Oklahoma State Employment Service from 62 to 68 as a receptionist and then as a job corps recruiter. I understood about people being out of work and always tried to cheer everybody up. And during this time, I met Terry. He taught me everything I ever wanted to know about sex, so I thought I should marry him. Where was the I can't marry you speech? I could never have earth ch children speech when you really needed it. Since their lightning strikes, which I will discuss later on in the book, I really don't remember much about this man. I was told about him, but the two years I was married to him are a struggle to remember, even when I look at the wedding pictures. I divorced him because I found lipstick on his shorts. And I threw a fit. This was not a smart move on my part, especially when you're naked and throwing a fit. Terry beat me up pretty good, and I ran out of the apartment naked and screaming bloody murder. People came, put a sheet on me, and took me to the hospital. At the hospital, I called David Hall, who was running for governor at the time. 
he was a friend of my dad, so he came to the hospital to see me, and when he saw me, he said, oh my God, who did this? And I said, Terry. About that time, Terry walked in the room. David grabbed him and threw him against the wall. I said, David, you're running for governor. You've got too many witnesses. Please don't do this. He said, you're right. So he called the police and they carted him off. David said, I'm going to call your dad. I said, if you tell him, he'll come here and kill Terry and then he'll go to jail. You must promise me never to tell my dad. He promised. I divorced Terry in January of 68. Afterwards, I flew to Bermuda where I started recuperating while paying off his car in his law school. He worked for a judge, so I got stuck paying him alimony, which was a terrible thing, but I did it. I paid it off. Many years later, after Terry was killed in a car accident in 1979, I told my dad about the beating. I knew that he couldn't go kill Terry because Terry was dead now. Before Terry died, I think he robbed a bank and left the country. I believe this because he owed my dad $5,000, and exactly $5,000 in a brown paper bag from, arrived from Mexico in the mail to my dad just out of the blue. In November of 68, David Hall became governor of the state of Oklahoma, and on the front page of the Daily Oklahoman, he was shaking people's hands, and just as they snapped the picture, he was shaking mine. I was in my purple dress, and I have that picture to this day. I also have the purple dress. In 1968, I left the Oklahoma Employment Service in Oklahoma City and went to work at FM Radio in Tulsa as sales manager for the radio station. On February 12, 1969, I had an experience at a radio station that, because of events that happened that day, started me on my huge metaphysical journey. I lived on the 28th floor in the same building as Cam FM Radio. I would crawl out of bed every morning, go up to the station, check my messages, and then back down to my apartment to finish getting dressed. As the sales manager, I had lots of perks. I had a car, an apartment, an expense account. I was 26 years old, good looking, a perfect size 10, and I had the world by the tail. Part of my job as sales manager was to call on clients and help write copy for our radio ads. I spearheaded a campaign called Two for Two for Twenty Pass It On. I won a lot of awards for that campaign, especially for the slogan, Have a Nice Day, Pass It On, which was mine. Now back to February 12, 69. There was this man named Jim who would never return in my phone calls. He would make appointments with me and never show up. I thought this was very strange that he would stand me up all the time. He worked for the RCA Whirlpool dealership in Tulsa, and he had a very large advertising budget, which I needed a part of for the radio station. He spent at least two months avoiding me. There was this place in Tulsa called the Cognito Inn. This is where the rich oil man, bankers, and investors would take their girlfriends and secretaries for a quiet getaway. The main rule of this place was that wives were not permitted in this club until after seven at night. The Cognito Inn was quaint, dark, and was partially lit by candlelight. They had these little rooms at the side where the men could take their girls and make out. It was really a wild place. All the advertising people went there. If you were in radio or TV, you took your clients there. It was the entertainment spot of Tulsa. My daily routine consisted of going into the station in the morning, making a few phone calls, I'd leave the station, make personal visits on a few clients, and by lunchtime I'd be at the Cognito Inn with a client, eating, 
and drinking until 2 p.m., and then it was back to the station. I would work there until 4 p.m., and then back to the Cognito Inn, where I'd stay, until midnight. This was how we conducted business in those days, advertising done in a bar. On February 12, 1969, Jim came in the Cognito Inn. I didn't know what he looked like, but I heard someone say his name. I turned and looked. And I said, where is the son of a bitch I've been? He's been standing me up for two months. When I finally located him, I went over and introduced myself. And he said, I know who you are. I've been in love with you from the moment I heard your name. I said, what? He said, that's it. You're my soulmate, and I know it. And I've been avoiding you, and I don't know what to do. And I said, oh, you've, <laughs> you've got a really good line there. That's really good. That's one of the best things I've ever heard. He said, do you believe in reincarnation? And I said, well, yeah, kind of. He said, well, I've been having dreams about you. I've been seeing you. You haven't been seeing me, but I've been seeing you. I've been watching you for a long time. He was drinking black Russians, and then another, and then another. And by this time, he had not changed his story. He just kept it getting deeper and deeper into metaphysics. Even though I was having a few drinks, I began to think that there might be something to this metaphysical stuff. When the night was over, I got in my little car to drive home. As I started the car, I looked up at the windshield and written in condensation and human handwriting were the words, you'll have this man for three years and no more, February 12, 1972. When I saw it, it freaked me out. I thought, well, who would do this? But then there was the fact that my car was locked and the message was written from the inside. This really freaked me out. In fact, it freaked me out so bad that I just wanted to leave town, leave Tulsa altogether. I went to my boss and said, you know, you've been waiting for me to go to Vegas. I'm going tomorrow. The next day, I got on an airplane and left for Vegas. This was the third extraterrestrial occurrence in my life. But this time, I was more awake. Well, Lavendar, <laughs> so th this is the, the chapter called The Seedling. Now, so far you've had three extraterrestrial interventions in your life. Are you there, Lavendar? There you are. <laughs> Hello? Am I here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, little little phone trouble there. Okay, what was the question? Well, I'm just saying that now at this at this point in the story, you've had three extraterrestrial interventions in your life, and you're starting to wake up. Yeah. 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 The the handwriting on uh, on the windshield was probably you know something that whole thing was just i i just didn't know i i, I was very um i knew i knew that a, that a, that some someone somewhere was was doing something with me I, I didn't exactly know what at that time and that was actually the the uh, one of the turning points yeah it was a big very, very big turning point and then uh 
you left the very next day for Las Vegas. Right, and 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 when I come back on the show again, I'll I'll pick up where that left off. Wow. So now you have it from the very beginning, how Lavendar's life started, and we will uh, go back into the archives and pull out the next chapter on one of our next shows. But for tonight, for tonight, we want to thank you all for tuning in, and thank you, Lavendar, for a lifetime of service. So until the next show, everyone take care of yourself and remember to hold gratitude in your heart and give compassion rather than judgment. Until next time, good night, everyone. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com. 